0: So our first question, why did God use a bronze staff shaped as a serpent to represent looking to Christ and live during the incident with the snakes biting and killing people in the wilderness? If the snakes, serpents, represent Satan and his poisonous lies and attacks, why is a serpent shape used when Moses told the people to look up and live? If this incident was to turn the people's eyes to Jesus and, uh, and the symbol of Christ on the cross, why the serpent shaped bronze staff to represent Christ? Uh, that, so bronze, first off, is a mix of two different metals. It's not a pure metal. Gold is pure, silver is pure, mix of two different metals. And Christ mixed his divine self with our human self so the bronze metal represents christ taking upon himself our fallen state mixing it with his, his his holy state for the purpose of cleansing and overcoming so that is showing christ as his sojourn on heaven um the bible says that the sting of sin is death and uh, thus the uh, satan the serpent who has infected humanity with his lies has stung us with death and they are actually dying of this literal stings jesus uh took upon it says that um that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So so the serpent represents Jesus becoming sin or taking the sin condition upon himself for the purpose of cleansing humanity from that sin condition. And we benefit from that just as they did by looking in faith and the raising it up on on a staff represents Jesus who took upon himself the human condition, the human sin condition for the purpose of cleansing it, being raised up on the cross. So I think the symbolism is quite right. He took upon himself the consequences of what the serpent did to us, uh, the sin and death condition, unless he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, as it says in 2 Timothy 1.10. Can you uh, break this quote from desire of ages down through design, law, lens, and substitutionary death for you and me? So first I'm gonna say in class, if you apply what I talked about in class today, you could take this yourself and break this down. But this was presented before I presented class, so I'll go ahead and work this through. It says, uh, we'll, re- we'll read this. It says, upon Christ as our substitute ensured, he was laid the iniquity of us all. So we've already established Christ became our substitute in taking upon himself the human condition because to save this species, he had to become part of the species. Uh, and uh, and the iniquity is the infection or the sin condition, the corruption that Adam brought on to the humanity he took upon him, upon himself voluntarily. He was counted as a transgressor. He was made to be sin though he knew no sin. He took upon himself that that terminal state for the purpose of replacing it with a holy righteous state so that's why he was counted as a legit because he became a real human being partaking of the same life that god created in eden passed down through all the generations and corrupted by adam's sin he partook of that born of a woman under law it says in galatians 4 4 so he was rightly counted as one of this fallen creation, even though his father was the Holy Spirit and he himself did not sin, he partook of this creation. He could rightly fix what was broken in this creation, that he might redeem us, free us, claim us back from the condemnation of the law. What does the law condemn? It condemns all that's out of harmony with it. And he redeems us by putting the humanity that he took upon himself back in harmony, restoring the perfect law of God into the humanity that he took upon himself, the guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. If you have the penal legal model, you'll think the imposed law guilt, all sins of past, present, and future placed on Christ, and he is now held legally guilty. That's not what this means at all. It means that all of us suffer the emotional guilt of sin and he in our place in Gethsemane was feeling that same emotional guilt from the humanity he took upon himself. It also means the empathizing element. He loves us all so much and aware of all the guilt that all of humanity is suffering from. That guilt of all humanity uh, was pressing upon his heart. So if you saw your loved one suffering uh, in some grueling cancer pain, you could look at that and say their pain was, was pressing upon my heart. Okay, So that aspect of it was pressing upon him, his heart, but there's nothing legal going on there. The wrath of God against sin and God's wrath, as we've described in many places, is when God stops using power to hold at bay and sets free to reap what one chooses. So God had to let go of his son when his son chose to be our substitutionary savior and chose to go through the cross. Remember the events leading up to the cross. Jesus told his disciples, multiple times, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down, I'll pick it up again. Jesus' self-sacrifice was a voluntary act. It was not forced against him. He could have freed himself at any time, but he didn't. But he could not have fulfilled his purpose to cleanse humanity from sin if he didn't go through the cross and purge it by his death, destroying those elements and rising to new life and a purified humanity. He couldn't have done that if his father didn't let go of him, because his father is also the source of life. So his father separated himself so he can complete his mission. And that's the wrath of God, letting people go to reap what they have chosen. Uh, The terrible manifestations of his displeasure because of iniquity filled the soul of the son of God. So he was feeling that horrible feeling when we are separated from God, and that's God's displeasure. God is not happy to let his children go any more than a parent would be happy to let their children go. And Jesus felt that awful separation. Uh, fill the soul of the Son of God. Um, all his life, Christ has been yeah. So publishing the good news about that, so that's how we walk through that. It's very straightforward, very based on reality. How objective uh, reality works in God's design laws function. In in the room, those who are in the room, did that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then this one could could you please explain the account of the temptation of Jesus? How do we know it happened? First, we know what happened. If you have confidence in scripture, that the scripture record recorded it happened. But then the next question, were the disciples with them? Maybe at a distance. So they're wanting to know how that record got there. We are not told whether the disciples were at some distance witnessing. We are not told whether the Holy Spirit inspired them with a vision afterwards. We are not told whether after the, the temptations, Jesus gave them a personal account of it. Uh, we are not told how the disciples who wrote the Gospels came by that knowledge. We are we are told that holy men of God, moved by the Spirit, um, have recorded what's in Scripture. And so, based on the um, the evaluation of the quality of the Scripture itself, we can have confidence that what is recorded there is an accurate description of what Jesus went through. Did Satan act on his mind, or did he actually physically appear and transport Jesus to the high place of the temple? Uh, Some people, and then what temple, some people seem to think it all happened as a hallucination or a dream. What say you? I think we can have great confidence that Satan could not manipulate Jesus' mind in that way, okay? Uh, Mind is where uh, Jesus' mind remained pure and undefiled and Satan would not have access to enter Jesus' mind to manipulate his perceptions. Uh, it, Jesus wouldn't even allow some alcohol to be given at the crucifixion that would affect his mind. So I have no doubt that Jesus' mind was not directly affected in some hallucinatory way. So that then leaves that he was literally taken. And I believe that's exactly what happened. I think Satan is a supernatural being who was able to transport Jesus to the temple. I believe it was the temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> because he was uh, pretending to be an angel of light, and he was um, pretending that he was there to help advance the plan of salvation, which was uh, being worked out an object lesson through the uh, temple of Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you think- we have evidence of the Holy Spirit transporting Philip in the book of Acts uh, very quickly from one place to another. And so this is what I think happened here. Uh, there was a question in the audience? Yeah, I was. Gonna, do you think people could see them up on the rooftop of the temple? Uh, We have no record that that could happen and so it's completely speculative. Were they up there in a way, and maybe it was a foggy day and there was some fog and they couldn't see them. Were they up there in a way that they were kept hidden uh, in supernatural ways from the public's eye, uh, like angels that are around us and we can't see. Um, We we are not told that question. We're only told he was taken to the top of the temple and, and tempted to throw himself down. And it would have been in this physical reality because he would have harmed himself uh, had he thrown himself down. And had uh, Lucifer uh, nudged him off and shoved him off against his will, angels would have protected him at that point. But had he thrown himself off, angels would not have protected him because it had been his choice to do that to himself. Hey, hey Tim, Satan had a panorama of all the world's governments come before Christ when he was, when he was being tempted. Yep, yep. So there's some kind of interaction he's having What I believe you see in what Satan is doing there are some of the powers that Adam lost that Satan is now utilizing. And I think some of those powers we will regain when we are in our immortal bodies on this earth again. Powers of teleportation, telekinesis, and some of these types of uh, – Uh, telepathy even, where we could communicate uh, without cell phones to each other by sending our thoughts to them and knocking on the door of their mind. And they say, yeah, what do you got going on? And might be on the other side of the planet. I think all of those abilities we will have um, innately through the quantum links that God has established all life and matter to operate upon that we are so broken and disconnected from that we can't do. I think Jesus walking on water um, was uh, something that we will be as a second Adam. He did that as the second Adam. I think when when uh, when the earth is made new, we'll be able to walk on water. Uh, those abilities are, are are things that I think God gave Adam to do. So, you're correct. Um, so I, I think this was literal on the on the question. In the seven levels of moral decision making, I understand that a person has to go through all levels and that they can't understand more than one level above them where they are currently functioning what most of Christians, including uh, Adventists, uh, seem to be at level four. Uh, can, can Let's see, with most of Christians, including Adventists, at level four, can they even understand what we are talking about with the Zion law? So first answer to this question, off the time, no. And you see this in, in Jesus' life. This is not restricted to us today. This is historical, and there's plenty of evidence through Scripture. You will find these conflicts happening all through Scripture when one of God's spokespersons is presenting a a level seven understanding of reality, and the people cannot comprehend it. Jesus constantly did this and was constantly being attacked, and so did the apostles. But even when the first set of commandments were given at Sinai, the reason for the fourth commandment that was given was to remember God as creator. It was this level seven understanding. It was the design law. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days and for six days I created all these things. This is how creation works. It operates on design law. Remember design law. That's what it was given for. They were immediately worshiping a golden calf. And so God says, "You can't handle that. Let's start at level one." Remember, I'm the God who freed you from slavery. I'm powerful. Level one. And so He gave them a new set of commandments that started where they were—a um, powerful God who has more power from the other gods that they were wanting to worship. And so you'll find this all through history. That's exactly right. Continuing on uh, with the question. I asked this as a result of introducing these teachings at my church. Those that were at what I would consider to be level five, love for other people, right and wrong, by love for other people is level five, embraced it while those at level four, law and order, imperial Roman system, um, reject it. Um, you're exactly correct. My experience is that those who are still at level four cannot understand these higher levels and they always make a false allegation of us who are teaching level six and seven reality. They're always making the allegation that we teach moral influence theory. Moral influence theory is level five understanding. God loved us so much that he uh, couldn't let us go, so he morally influenced us by a revelation of truth truth to win us back to love. That's moral influence theory. That's a level five understanding. And that's what the people at, at level four accuses of. And when they accuses of that, it diagnoses that they're at level four because you really can only understand a level, one level above the level you're at. But they're not actually understanding what we described in class today, which is the healing model of reality, that God is the creator of reality, sin damages his creation, and God had to actually fix the brokenness in creation in order to save us from the damage that sin causes. And that's what we described in class today. Hey Tim, before leaving that thought, it could be argued that if God is talking over people's heads, how can they be responsible for not understanding? So I think probably also important to say how God speaks to each heart at a level that they can comprehend and through their either acceptance or rejection of the beauty of nature, of the kindness of others, of hearing uh, and, and having evidences of a loving God that they, they it's not as if they're a level two that suddenly encounter a level five door and, and reject it based on not having the capability to comprehend, but that God speaks to each heart where they can hear. Is that? No, th- thank you for that. It's very helpful. Uh, so these levels are um, not doors. They are developmental levels that God designed for us to grow and mature through. Just on physical developmental levels, a baby um, can't even crawl when they're first born and eventually can crawl and and eventually uh, can toddle and eventually can walk, eventually can run. You don't go from crawling to running. You have to go through the intermediary steps to develop those abilities. And so these are natural uh, levels that we are to advance through as we have love for God and love for truth in our hearts. But what happens with the penal legal system, it actually impairs development. It blocks people's development. And this is what Paul is saying in Hebrews chapter five and six, where he says, you ought to be on spiritual meat, but you're still on milk. And those who are on milk are not acquainted with the teachings of righteousness. No, they're not. They're teaching with the fraudulent thing that says you're declared righteous when you're not really righteous yet. No, nope, you're still not acquainted with the teachings of righteousness. Because you're focused on the acts that lead to death, the do's and the don'ts, and the repentance from acts that lead to death. You're still all focused on the rules. You're a child still. You think it's legal. No, the true righteousness is we become righteous. We get new hearts and right spirits, but you're not acquainted with that because you're still an infant on milk. Now, infants as infants are perfect. And toddlers and toddlers stumbling and falling and still needing diapers are perfect are perfect for their developmental stage. And newborns in Christ need some of these rules and some of these uh, directives. But the problem is when the leadership, who are the adults, are supposed to be the parents, the level seven, the mature, are actually teaching the kids that maturity is actually staying as children, as infants, staying on rules. That's the problem and it thus stunts their growth. And thus when we see a, a 20-year-old still in diapers, we don't think that that's normal anymore. We shouldn't uh, promote that. Or a 20-year-old still eating out of a box. Bottle. no that's not how reality works and that's the problem with much of christianity they want to spoon feed people things that the pastor says rather than teaching to grow up and become discerning christians who know how to um, discern the right from the wrong themselves because they understand how reality works you're right god speaks to us in all the levels that we need but the plan of salvation is that we develop the mind of christ and become mature christians who can tell the right from the wrong so thanks for that and my, and my heartburn is with the leaders in the organization. Who, as Jesus dealt with Nicodemus, you're a leader and you don't know this, Nicodemus? Okay? The problem is when the leadership promotes as virtuous diapers and bottles. <laughs> and that's what they do with their penal legal mechanisms. And that prevents people from ever expecting or even looking to grow beyond that. And when they accuse those who are teaching as Jesus taught, as being heretics and trying to silence them. That's the problem. But you're right, Jesus meets everybody where they are. In the fall, Satan didn't receive any immediate punishment for either disguising or getting into the mind of the serpent to deceive Eve, why not? Even though all guilty parties appear to suffer immediately, humans were cast out, snakes to eat dust, if the snake was used it should not be punished as it was Satan behind it in God's design law of humans why do you think they Adam and Eve Cain were not able to repent how did repentance come about if we are designed not if we are designed not to repent so thanks for this question it's a this question is framed in my view of reading it as someone who's still struggling to differentiate between design law and impose law. Why didn't Satan save save, receive immediate punishment? And then you cite being thrown out of the garden and the serpent being losing its wings and having to eat dust as if those things are punishments. So the idea of the question is set up to look at punishment as something inflicted by the authority. Rather than recognizing, wait a minute, what's already happening within the heart, mind, and character of Satan? Satan is already suffering the loss of joy, the loss of happiness, the loss of bliss, the loss of peace. He's already filled with fear, with anger, with rage, uh, with disgruntledness. His character is being corrupted. His heart is already hardened beyond salvation. So he's already experiencing the punishment of what sin does in his life. The acts that you described as punishments were not punishments at all. Those were God's therapeutic interventions to now bring about the plan of salvation. God's operations to to prevent the pain and suffering of what would happen if they retained themselves in the Garden of Eden and retained access to the tree of life in their sinful state, there would have been no end to the woe and turmoil and misery and abuse that would have happened on this planet had people like Adolf Hitler had access to the tree of life and would never age and never get old and could heal heal any wound and any sickness. So God's actions, they were merciful and gracious to prevent the suffering, limit its capacity and bring forth the plan of salvation. These are not punishments for sin. So and, and uh, Satan was not um, was not protected from reaping the initial punishments, and in the end, he'll reap the ultimate punishment when he also ceases to exist. Uh, in Daniel, uh, we are given the names Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In the Christian world, we have been indoctrinated to use their false names. It doesn't list them, but he's referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was done to humiliate and attempt to indoctrinate these highly intelligent men. Should we as Christians honor these men by using their names as godly, as godly meaning, these names of godly meaning given to them by their godly parents? Also, it seems that the portion of Daniel that were not written by Daniel or were quotes from the Chaldeans uh, were the times where their secular names were used. It seems that the person who wrote this has a very strong passion and it means a lot to them, so I would encourage them to use the names that they find peace with and does not trouble their soul. However, as the preface to the King James Bible, the authors that translated that back in 1611 wrote, a kingdom of his heaven is not made of words. Words are simply tools or symbol- symbols to represent ideas and concepts. And the meaning we attach to the words are as significant. You have framed this question with a lot of presumed meanings that if we accept, we would would introduce offense and violence if we use the the Babylonian names, Um, such as you say they're false names. Well, it wasn't their birth and given names, but many people, get different names um, throughout scripture and have a variety of different labels that they go by. Um, And Jesus has more names than we can count. So the labels that we attach to people really are not as significant as the meanings we attach when we hear those names. And so it sounds to me that you hear an offense, a undermining of righteousness, something that is a violation of good if we use their Babylonian name. So uh, that, I certainly wouldn't want to, to do something like that to offend to offend you, but many of us don't hear it that way at all. And I don't think it distracts from the story in any way. And I don't see anything being added or benefited to the story by using their, their, um, their Hebrew names. How does that add to the story and what they did? Uh, in fact, you could make the argument that their gracious willingness to accept the Babylonian names and not take a stand, you notice what they stood for, they stood for things that were actually violations of what they would view as God's laws and principles. They would not allow themselves to give honor to the Babylonian gods in any way. But they, we don't have any record that they protested these Babylonian names and they accepted them and operated under them. So why all these years later are we making an issue of it when they evidenced in Scripture what they stood against? Why are we making a new issue in a new area to fight over? I find this a whole lot to do, really, about nothing. All right, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your watch care, and we pray that we can advance your cause effectively in this world, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.